Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. I encourage you to join me this morning, if you would, in the little epistle of 1 John, chapter 2, reading the first two verses. The apostle says, My little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. We've been thinking together since the beginning of the year on the theme traveling light. The idea is that we are to trust God with the burdens that we were never intended to carry. Our text has been Matthew eleven twenty-eight, where Jesus says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He calls upon us to exchange our heavy burdens for his burden of discipleship. And in comparison to the heavy burdens that you and I carry in life, his yoke is easy. His burden is light. We are to trust him to carry the load that we are incapable of bearing and to assume instead his light load of discipleship. Now, as we've thought about this theme, we've discussed the suffocating burden of fear. And that's something with which each of us can identify. Fear is one of the heaviest pieces of unnecessary luggage that you and I tend to carry. And we talked about the fact that fear is primarily a thinking problem in which a person imagines some anticipated event, some unpleasant outcome or experience. Over 250 times, the Bible gives us this imperative, fear not. We're not intended to live our lives in fear. God did not give us the spirit of fear, but he has given us three resources to help us to conquer fear. Power, the power of the Holy Spirit is at your disposal. Love, his love absolves all of your fears. And a sound mind, the ability to maintain calmness and poise and a peace that passes all understanding and to think rationally about the things that cause us fear. Today, I want to look at another of these two word imperatives in the Bible. Instead of fear not, today, let's look at these two words, sin not. And today, we're thinking about the universal burden of guilt and shame and regret and feelings of failure in our lives. The guilt is a burden of the conscience. And just as fear has to do primarily with our thinking, guilt and regret have to do with what the Bible calls the conscience. And that's the theme of our text. He says, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now let's begin this morning by defining three very important words, and the first is this word conscience. 
Now, we didn't see the word conscience in our text here, but it's implied throughout this entire passage. In fact, in the first chapter, he's talked about the need to confess our sins. And he says, when we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that language has to be interpreted in terms of the conscience of the little child of God. You will have assurance of divine pardon and forgiveness in your conscience when you confess your sins. Now, what is the conscience? Well, there's an interesting verse in Proverbs 20, verse 27, that describes the conscience when he says, The spirit of man is the candle of the Lord, searching all the inward parts of the belly. The imagery in that text is of the Jewish practice of searching every nook and cranny of a house prior to the Passover to make sure no leaven could be found. Conscience is used by God to investigate and expose areas in our behavior that are displeasing to the Lord. Conscience, in other words, is an internal judge in a person's heart that makes distinctions between right and wrong. And it issues a verdict that either acquits and absolves or it convicts and condemns. Romans 2.15 says it like this, our conscience will either accuse or excuse our actions and the actions of others. I remember as a grade school boy sitting in an assembly hall and watching a little video of Jiminy Cricket singing, Let Your Conscience Be Your Guide. And you may remember Jiminy Cricket sat on Pinocchio's shoulder and tried to convince him of the difference between right and wrong. Now, the word conscience really is similar to the idea of a satellite. You know, a satellite that flies along beside a planet. The moon is actually one of Earth's satellites. It's a divine satellite. It's not man-made. But the conscience goes along with the child of grace in his life, and it issues judgments. It's like you go to court every day. Our conscience holds court in our lives. And it adjudicates or distinguishes between behavior that is proper and true and right and that which is improper and sinful and wrong. The conscience is a gift that God has built into human beings. Now, by nature, our conscience is defiled. And it doesn't function properly. Titus 1.15 says, even their hearts and consciences are defiled. The natural man's conscience may know right from wrong, but it doesn't love what is right. In fact, it loves what is wrong. But you know, when a child of God has been quickened and born again, the conscience is activated and now it functions as the Lord's candle that searches and investigates and examines every part of our lives to expose those behaviors that are wrong and to absolve us when we've done right. And I want to say the Bible teaches that it's a priority in our lives, or should be a priority, to maintain an unoffended and undefiled conscience. In fact, we took our text in 1 John chapter 2, if you look into the next chapter, 1 John 3, verse 20. He says, if our heart condemn us. Now I want to ask you, have you ever looked in the mirror and just shook your head and clucked your tongue in dismay at something you had said 
or something you had thought or something you had done that you felt guilty about. Your heart is condemning you. If our heart condemn us, that is, the judge has said you did wrong. If our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. And what he's saying there is that your conscience is not the final court of appeal. There's a court, there's a judge above conscience. In other words, you may feel that you're a bad person. But you know, in the final analysis, it's what God thinks about you and what God says about you that matters, right? Your emotions, my emotions, our conscience does not have the last word. It's a lower court. Supreme Court has the last word. And God is the only judge in the Supreme Court of the universe. So if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts, and he knoweth all things. But then watch this next verse. If our hearts condemn us not. Now here's a better condition to live in. Instead of living your life with a convicted conscience, an offended conscience, what a heavy burden that is to carry. He says, seek to live your life with an uncondemned heart, with a good conscience, to where you have no reason to feel that you've done wrong. Even though you are ready to confess, I'm a sinner, yet there's no particular sense of conviction of sin in your mind at the moment that you've done anything particularly wrong. He says, if our hearts condemn us not, then we have confidence toward God. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Confident living is the product of living with a clear and unoffended conscience. Another verse that speaks of the importance of maintaining a good conscience, keeping a clear conscience, is 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, where the apostle says, now the end of the commandment, and the word end is telos, in the Greek, which means that this is the goal. What is the goal of gospel preaching? What are we looking for? What is the outcome that we want from reading the Bible? When God gave us his book, his revelation in scripture, what is the intended object? What is the intended goal? Well, here it is. Now, the end of the commandment, here's what it all aims at doing, is charity out of a pure heart. Teaching is meant to make us more loving. Charity out of a pure heart, watch this, and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned or unpretended. Now the Lord calls upon us to be sincere in our faith, to be unpretentious, not hypocritical. He wants us to be charitable and he wants us to live with a clear or a good conscience. And that's what Bible teaching is good for. Bible teaching is intended to lead to this result that we would live our lives charitably and free from any conviction of sin because we're obeying God and that we would be sincere. Our faith would be unpretended, genuine, and real. One more verse that talks about the importance of maintaining a good conscience is Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. David says, search me, O God, and see, try me and know my heart and see if there be any wicked way in me and then lead me in the way everlasting. Now, he says, Lord, I'm willing to be investigated. I ask you to explore my life. And I want to say that's a dangerous prayer to pray. 
in one sense if for a person to say, Lord, I'm an open book. I want you to show me anything in my life that is displeasing to you and to cleanse me from it so that I can live a better life. But yet, what an important prayer that is to pray. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and see if there is any wicked way in me, and then lead me in the way everlasting. He's saying, Lord, I want to live with a clear and a good conscience. So let's define our terms. What is conscience? It's a judge that is making judgments about your behavior. God has given this internal warning system that flashes the red light when you're getting too close to danger. What would you think of a pilot who did not listen to the internal warning system of his aircraft that said, you're getting too close to a mountain, and he said, oh, be quiet, I'm just going to turn you off, you're troubling me. No, you want to listen because it's an important voice, right? The voice of conscience. Now, the fact is, conscience is not perfect. In fact, it depends on how you've been taught. Some people feel that doing certain things is wrong. You know, I know many Christians have been taught that playing cards is wrong. Now, I think gambling and covetousness are to be avoided, but, um, you know, some people have a list of things that they've been taught is wrong. Conscience is very sensitive to those things. And others say those are matters of Christian liberty. So conscience can be misdirected, misinformed. Conscience needs to be educated by the Word of God, okay? But yet conscience is a God-given gift, and it's important to keep a good conscience. Because what happens if you journey through life with conviction, if you feel offended at the way you've been living? What happens if you know that you've been living a double life, or you've been living on the sly, that there's a secret side to you that the rest of the world knows nothing about. My friends, it hangs over you like a dark cloud wherever you go and whatever you do, doesn't it? And isn't it better to live in the sunlight, walking in sunlight all of my journey than to live with the dark foreboding cloud of guilt in our minds? Guilt, my beloved, is a heavy burden, and there's not a one of us, I suggest, who doesn't know what it's like to bear that burden in life. You see, what we're talking about is fear is a suitcase that is almost impossible to carry in life. And Jesus said, I can carry it for you. You just follow me. So you bring me your burdens, and you take my yoke, my easy yoke, and my light load on you. And guilt is another one of those heavy bags that many people carry with them through life, but my beloved, there's no need for it. There's a remedy for it. That's what I'm saying. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. Let's continue defining our terms. What about the word sin? Our text says, My little children, these things I write unto you that you sin not. What is sin? Well, Back in chapter 1 of 1 John, verse 8, he talks about the fact that sin is universal. In fact, he says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. In other words, the person who says, I don't have any sin, he said he's a liar. Now, I think most people would acknowledge that they're not perfect. But that's the way that people think about it, isn't it? They say, I'm not a sinner, but no, I'm not perfect. You know, everybody makes mistakes. But you know, there's a difference in sort of excusing our imperfections by saying everybody makes mistakes 
and actually claiming that I have sinned. And the person who says that he has no sin or that she has no sin is self-deceptive, is deceiving himself. If we say we have no sin, we are fooling ourselves. There's not a person here today who is exempt from total depravity. We call it total because it infects the whole human family. And there's none of us who is an exception to that rule. And then in verse 10, he say, if we say we have not sinned, now if we say we have no sin, that is the nature of sin, that is I'm, I don't have any sinful tendencies, any natural proclivities towards sin, then we're lying to ourselves. And he says, if we say we have not sinned, we're making God a liar. We make him a liar. And his word is not in us because God says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. What is sin? Well, sin is your biggest problem, and mine too. Now, that's not popular to say anymore in the kinder and gentler modern world. It used to be that if you went to church and heard a preacher preach, you would hear something about sin. You know, the man who went to church without his wife one Sunday and she was sick and he came home and she said, what did the preacher preach about? He said he preached about sin. And she said, what did you say about it? He, he said he was against it. <laughs> he wasn't in favor of it. And uh, we could talk about sin generally and everybody says that's bad. That We're all against it. But we start talking about specific sins Folks don't like that, do they? <laughs> you know, I mean, you talk about somebody else's sin, but not my sin, or, or to speak of it in general terms. But what is sin really? It's more than just a sickness. It's more than just a lack of self-esteem. In our hyper-psychological age, I suggest that the biblical and moral category of sin has often been redefined in terms of a disorder, or a disease or sickness. But sin, according to Scripture, is an act of cosmic treason against the government of God, against His authority. In fact, if you look in chapter 1 of 1 John, verse 9, notice he says that God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. That is, that language suggests that sin is a debt that needs remitted. And then he says, and to cleanse us, sin is not only a death that needs to be remitted, but it's a stain that needs to be removed. To cleanse us. To forgive us. We need forgiveness. That's the legal term. And we also need cleansing. That's the very personal and practical and experiential term. And God, he says, can forgive us as well as cleanse us from the stain of sin. So what is sin, my beloved? It's an act of treason against God that brings us into debt and that stains our lives. But I want to say that modern man no longer sees sin as the capital offense in which the Bible describes it. Or even, may I say, as some kind of felony. Rather, most people I would say today, if they see sin as an offense in any degree, they would say it's just a minor misdemeanor, like jaywalking. Or even more accurately, like I said a moment ago, many people think of sin as an illness or a disorder for which a person really is not responsible. If you're sick, it's not your fault, you know. And somebody says, well, I'm sick. 
You may have heard about the well-known and celebrated psychiatrist Carl Menninger, who in the 1970s wrote a landmark book entitled Whatever Became of Sin. It's a very surprising title from a secular psychiatrist. He was not a believer in Jesus Christ, but he was thinking about the fact that sin had almost disappeared from our understanding of human behavior. He saw clearly the folly of treating social and behavioral problems as if their causes were all non-moral. Menninger pointed out that modern psychology's approach, making guilt an aberration and treating self-blame as a fallacy, in effect absolves people from any moral responsibility for their behavior. And he says that will eat at the fabric of the soul in society. Menninger said we desperately need to recover the conviction that certain behaviors are sinful. He says, sin was once a word in everyone's mind, but now it's rarely ever heard, even in churches. He asked, is no one any longer guilty of anything? Wrong things are being done, we know. Tares are being sown in the wheat field at night, but is no one responsible? Is no one answerable for these actions? Anxiety and depression, we all acknowledge, and even vague guilt feelings, but has no one committed any sins? What indeed has become of sin? Indeed, my beloved, sin is our biggest problem. Our biggest need is to find alleviation of our guilt before a holy God, for our consciences to be clear. That's our greatest need. And then, The third word, conscience, sin. Here's the third important word. It's the word guilt. Now, the fact is that guilt is rarely treated seriously anymore because we don't think about sin in biblical categories. Guilt is seen as one of life's little aggravations. Somebody says we all have guilty pleasures like eating rich food or sleeping late, and that's the extent of the guilt that many people think about today. Many people characterize guilt as a groundless emotion that has the effect of taking all the fun out of life. It's not really legitimate. In fact, you may have seen articles in magazines on the subject of guilt titled like this, How to Stop Being So Tough on Yourself. Guilt can drive you crazy. Stop pleading guilty. Letting go of your guilt. Don't feed the guilt monster. The popular minister, John MacArthur, says he read an advice column in the newspaper that summarized the Universal Council of Our Generation. It was titled, It's Not Your Fault. And he said a woman had written to say that she had tried every form of therapy she knew and she still could not break the self-destructive habit of feeling guilty. The columnist said the first step you must take is to stop blaming yourself. Your compulsive behavior is not your fault. Refuse to accept the blame. And above all, do not blame yourself for what you cannot control. Heaping guilt on yourself only adds to your stress, your low self-esteem, worry, depression, feelings of inadequacy, and dependence on others. Let go of your guilt feelings. Oh, my friends, I suggest that guilt is a very real thing in our lives. You know why people feel guilty? Because they are guilty. (laughs) Because there is a God and we have a conscience. Now there is such a thing as false guilt. And again, a person that has taught you that certain things are wrong, which the Bible basically says are neutral, 
you know, a person can actually be psychologically harmed to the point that they feel guilt even though they've really not done anything wrong. But I want to say what we really need in our lives is not therapy, but forgiveness. And to deny personal guilt as if it's a real thing is to sacrifice your soul for the sake of your ego. You know, guilt is like pain. When you touch a hot stove or you stump your toe, the pain is intended to teach you that something is wrong and a remedy needs to be discovered. Guilt is a signal that something is wrong somewhere in our lives and it needs to be addressed and remedied. Indeed, there is a legitimate kind of guilt in the conscience and there's only one solution for it. It's not the therapist's couch. It's what our text says, sin not, and if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, do you want to know how to get rid of the heavy burden, the backpack of guilt in your conscience? The way we get rid of it is by doing what John tells us to do under divine inspiration in this passage. Because if we don't, I dare say, living with an offended conscience is a heavy burden to carry. Let me read two verses from the Old Testament. Psalm 32 is the first place. Psalm 32, verse 3. When I kept silence, the psalmist says I committed to sin, but he said I refused to admit it. I just tried to pretend that it wasn't there. He says, when I kept silence, here's what happened. My bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. He's describing physical effects of carrying guilt. For day and night, thy hand was heavy upon me. It's like God is pressing me down. My moisture, my strength and vitality, in other words, is turned into the drought of summer. He's describing physical effects of psychological guilt. He's carrying guilt in his conscience, and he says, it's like I'm getting old before my time. I've lost my energy. I can't sleep well. I just feel burdened when I go to bed and burdened when I get up. That's a heavy burden to carry. Turn forward a few pages to Psalm 38. Listen to verse 2. For thine arrows stick fast in me. <laughs> now that's describing a conviction of sin. Lord, you've like you've targeted me with your arrows. They stick fast in me. Thy hand presseth me sore. There is no soundness in my flesh because of thine anger. The word soundness speaks of health. So he says I'm physically sick neither is there any rest in my bones because of my sin you talk about vulnerability honesty i love the candor of the scriptures the psalmist doesn't pull his punches he doesn't say well it's the way that i was raised that's the problem obviously there there are extenuating circumstances we're all affected by our past but in the final analysis my beloved we're individually responsible to god for how we behave and how we live. So he says, mine iniquities are gone over my head. I feel like I'm drowning because of my sins as a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. Have you ever felt like this? I don't know. There may be somebody here this morning who's struggling with a guilty conscience. He says, my wounds stink and are corrupt because of my foolishness. I just can't believe I did that. He says, I am troubled. I am bowed down greatly. I'll go mourning all the day long. That language, my friends, describes the heavy burden of living with an offended conscience. And therefore, I suggest we need to maintain 
a tender conscience. We need to clear our conscience and have it sensitive to God. Charles Wesley wrote this hymn about the conscience. I wonder if you can identify with this. I want a principle within of watchful godly fear. He says, I, I desire this sensitivity. I want a principle within of watchful godly fear, a sensibility of sin, and a pain to feel it near. Instead of just rationalizing it or self-justifying by behavior or excusing it or blaming it on somebody else, he says, I want to feel sensitive to the nearness of sin. Help me, he prays, the first approach to feel of pride or of wrong desire, to catch the wandering of my will and to quench the kindling fire. From thee that I may no more stray, he prays, no more thy goodness grieve. Grant me the filial awe, I pray, the tender conscience give. Lord, give me a tender conscience. Quick as the apple of an eye, O God, my conscience make. Awake my soul when sin is nigh, and keep it still awake. Now you say, Brother Mike, how could I get such a tender and clear conscience? Well, three points in our text. A clear conscience first begins with confession of sin. Chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins. Now, notice the contrast between verse 9 and verse 8. Verse 8 said, if we say that we have not sinned. If we say we have no sin. Contrast that with verse 9. If we confess our sins. Here's somebody who denies, who tries to cover who tries to bash guilt, who says that it's all inappropriate and illegitimate, and here's somebody who acknowledges it freely. You know, the best case scenario for each of us is to deal honestly with God and to acknowledge that we have failed, that we have erred. If you want to get rid of the heavy burden of guilt that you carry, dear friends, and all of us at different times will deal with this, it's important to freely confess your sins, to acknowledge them, to admit them, because he already knows about them anyway, right? We're not fooling him. Now, pride says, I don't want to admit that I did anything wrong, but yet we can't, again, pull the wool over on the Lord's eyes. The best course of action is to say the same thing about them that God says. That's what the word confess means, to say the same thing. If we confess our sins... Now, I know we don't have a formal confessional. And uh, the reason we don't is because I'm not in the position of forgiveness. <laughs> I'm not handing out pardon. No man can actually deal with the deepest needs in your soul and in your life. Only God can, right? But we need to go to the confessional of our closets on a regular, in fact, a daily basis. Because there's not a day that we don't stumble and fall. And they may not be the, the worst of sins that you can think of, you know, like murder or embezzlement. But I dare say that if we understand how holy God is and that his all-seeing eye sees our motives and our thoughts as well as our actions and our deeds, we want to keep clear accounts with God, don't we? We want to deal with sin quickly and keep a clear slate and stay on speaking terms with him. Now notice, even if we sin, we're still his little children. Chapter 2, verse 1, my little children. And that's a wonderful pastoral and tender expression that John uses in which he reminds us that we're not only John's little children, but we're God's little children. And I want to say that when you and I sin, we don't cease to be children of God. 
sin does not disqualify you or me from the family, from the relationship that we have with God. But sin can break fellowship with our Father, right? Here's a child that has been rude to his parents and it's caused tension in the home and the dad or the mom has uh, said you're not going to treat me that way and the relationship's still intact, right? That person didn't cease to be a child and you cease to be a parent because of the sin, but yet the fellowship has been impaired. And the same is true in our fellowship with God, but we're still as little children. At the same time, dear friends, the best way to deal with sin in our relationship or fellowship with God is to freely admit it. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. I read from Psalm 32 just a minute ago where he said, my moisture was turned into the drought of summer. You know, I've lost all energy. Listen to the very next verse, Psalm 32, 5. I acknowledged my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity I have not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Oh, what refreshing sunlight is in those words. After he says, day and night, thy hand was heavy upon me. I tried to hide my sin. I tried to just act like it didn't exist. But he said, finally, I came to the point that I admitted it and acknowledged it. And God forgave my sin. What liberty, what freedom, what blessing is to be found in the grace of God. For thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin because I confessed. That's the promise in 1 John 1.9. If we confess, he is faithful and just. That is, he's, he's good for his promise. He's faithful. You can depend on God. He's not going to say, no, I'm going to hold it over your head. He will wipe the slate clean. He's faithful to do it. I want to say, dear friends, that a lot of the problems people have in their life is that they just don't really believe that God has forgiven their sins. In his book, Confess Your Sins, the late John Stott quoted the head of a large mental hospital in London who said, I could dismiss half my patients tomorrow if they could be assured that they were forgiven. What a powerful statement that is. I could dismiss half my patients tomorrow if they could just believe that they are truly forgiven. Oh, my friends, to carry guilt through your life because the conscience has offended you. It's, it has told you that that was wrong. And you say, well, I'll just try to silence it or stifle it or engage in entertainment or recreation to forget about what I've done wrong. But you know, you look back at the past, you see the bodies that are littered along life's way, the people you've hurt, the things that you've done wrong. There's not a one of us who can live with that burden forever. We need to apply to God with honesty and candor and say, Lord, I acknowledge my sin. I was deceptive. You say, oh, that's hard for me to say, Brother Mike. Yes, indeed, I was wrong is one of the hardest things for us to admit, isn't it? But to say it to God, He already knows it anyway. And the thing is, you're His little child. He's your Father. Verse 1 of chapter 2, we have an advocate with the Father. Notice the relationship is intact. The best way to deal with sin is to first confess it. Psalm 51, verses 1 to 4, David, after his sin with Bathsheba, Praise, have mercy upon me, O God. He prays, blot out my transgressions. Wash me throughly from mine iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge 
There it is, confession. My transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee and thee only have I sinned. Now David hadn't only sinned against God. He had sinned against Uriah, the Hittite, whose wife he stole and he had him set up to be killed. He had sinned against Bathsheba. But he understands that all sin is ultimately against God. My friends, if we could learn to deal on the vertical plane and not just on the horizontal plane, you say, well, look at all the people that are affected by this. But first and foremost, we need to understand this. God is offended by our sins. And the best way to deal with it then is to confess it, admit it, own up to it, acknowledge it, say the same thing about it that he says in his word. Lord, it's vile, it's heinous, it's exceedingly sinful. Because Proverbs 28.13 says, He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall obtain mercy. What a great promise that is. Secondly, a clear conscience not only begins with confession of sin, but it also results from a commitment to avoid sin in the future. My little children, these things I write unto you, that you sin less. Is that what he said? Just cut back about 50% on your sin. No, he says, don't sin at all. You say, no, Brother Mike, <laughs> that's a pretty high standard. I don't think anybody can reach that. You're right. But it doesn't mean that we shouldn't strive for it. Did you know the Bible is very clear that God calls us to perfect obedience and total commitment to him? And it should be our goal not to sin at all. Oh, if I could go 24 hours without saying anything that hurt somebody or that was self-centered or that became a stumbling block in another person's way. If I could go 24 hours without having a thought about somebody that was unloving and uncharitable. If I could love the things that God loves and hate the things that he hates. If I could affirm the things that he affirms and deny the things that he denies. That's the way that I want to live. I want to sin not. Not just sin less. This is the goal. Isaiah 117 says, cease to do evil and learn to do well. Notice he didn't say learn to stop doing evil, just taper off over. He says stop it. You know when a thief ceases to be a thief? When he stops stealing. <laughs> stop it. Just quit doing the things that God said are wrong. Cease to do evil and then learn to do well. You do have to be educated. It takes time to be the person you ought to be, but the first thing you need to do is stop at the stop sign. And then you can check both ways before you cross and move forward. Acts chapter 24, verse 16, the Apostle Paul says, Herein do I exercise myself. Paul, what is your number one activity in life? What is your focus? He says, this is what I live each day trying to do. Herein do I exercise myself that I may have a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. I want to live in such a way that I have a clear conscience. A clear conscience results from a commitment to avoid sin. And by the way, saying no to sin requires radical measures. Jesus compared it to the plucking out of an eye or the cutting off of a hand in Matthew 5. If your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your hand offends you, cut it off. Now, is he teaching us to do that literally? 
No, because the problem is if you cut off your hand when you've stolen something, you say, I'm just tempted to steal and I've stolen it before, so I'm going to cut my hand off. The desire is still there in the heart, right? Even though the hand doesn't work anymore. If you've been looking at something you shouldn't look at and your eye has offended you and you pluck it out, may I say the images are still there, the desire, the energy is still there in the heart. There's no way to rid ourselves of sin by punishing our physical body. You may know that there are the ascetics, asceticism, which was popular in certain mystical religions and even forms of Roman Catholicism in the past. The ascetics believed in self-flagellation, that the best way to make myself holy is to sleep on a cold concrete floor in a monastery without any blanket, deny myself any food except for just the weakest of broth, to punish myself with a whip, you know, self-flagellation. My beloved, may I say that that is not spiritual at all. And you can't reach holiness and sanctification by doing that. The best way to deal with sin is to understand it's an energy in the heart and then be willing to cut the process short. When he says, pluck out your eye, cut off your hand, he's not saying do it physically, but he's saying take drastic steps to avoid the things that cause you to stumble. If watching television is a temptation to you, then it's best to uh, put controls on it or not watch it or make sure that you're accountable to somebody. You say, well, Brother Mike, that's too hard. It's I, I want to. I, exactly. But the best way to do it is to take radical steps to amputate. The doctrine of radical amputation. You believe in the doctrine of amputation? <laughs> in a spiritual sense, yes. Take radical steps to deny sin. And then finally, a clear conscience results from knowing your advocate has already resolved the guilt of sin. Notice he says, sin not, and if any man sin. Now the conjunction and is interesting. He doesn't say sin not, but if you happen to sin, he says, and, implying that the Lord understands the reality of the situation. In other words, Jesus is not being easy on sin in this passage, but he is being realistic about it. He says, don't sin, and if you do. And the fact is, my friends, we all will. What do we do then? You say, I had it in my mind to be holy, to do the right thing, but I sinned. What do you do then? The best thing to do then, my beloved, is to remember that your advocate, your defense attorney, is pleading your case before the Father. You have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That word advocate means your ally, your lawyer, somebody who stands beside you, your defender in court. I don't know if you've ever been in court. It was about 40 years before I ever went to court for the first time not for anything that I'd done necessarily. But I remember how relieved I was to know that there was a capable defense attorney representing my loved one. Have you ever been in court? It's a foreboding, intimidating place, isn't it? It's scary. I was nervous the first time I went in. I'm telling you, dear friends, there is a capable and qualified defender, our advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is pleading our case before the Father right now, and He has already resolved our guilt. He is the propitiation for our sins, says verse 2, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. 
Our defense attorney is Jesus Christ, the righteous. And you and I are righteous through the imputation of his righteousness to us. He is the only practicing lawyer in heaven. I almost said he's the only lawyer in heaven. That's, that wouldn't be good, would it? No, there'll be other lawyers in heaven, but they won't be practicing. There's only one attorney who's practicing in heaven, and he's your advocate who stands up to speak for you, to plead for you, and he's the judge's own son. And he's pleading his perfect merit on the cross. My friends, that's why we're told in Revelation chapter 5, weep not over your sins. For behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah the Lamb of God, the Root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. John Bunyan's pilgrim named Christian carried a heavy burden on his back, the burden of guilt, and he tried to get rid of it. He went to the law. He went to Mr. Morality, but he couldn't find any relief. Finally, he saw the cross, and as soon as he saw the cross, the straps magically unloosed and the backpack fell from his back and he was free and liberated and my friends that's my experience at the cross at the cross when i first saw the light my burden of guilt was removed that my friends is my experience i hope that this message today has helped you to learn how to deal with the luggage of guilt you don't have to carry it take it to the lord confess it Commit yourself to trying to live a godly life. Pray for the Holy Spirit to help you to do that. And when you do sin, remember that you have a representative in heaven who's already paid for that sin. And forgiveness is yours by virtue of the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Sing.